You do not know what you want, but you will always find that Christ comes to you and meets you just where you are. And thus it comes to pass that as we live in this world with its trials and troubles and perplexities and problems, we come to know God in a way that we can never know him were it not that we have to go through these things. Do you not find that he is ever surprising you, that you are always making some new discovery, arriving at some fresh knowledge of his grace because of some peculiar circumstance in which you have been placed? You have had some new experience, and God has met you there in a way he has never met you before, and so you have come to know him better. He leaves us here in the world, therefore, partly to display to us the riches of his grace and the manifold character of his loving kindness and his mercy. A quote from The Assurance of Our Salvation by Martin Lloyd-Jones. Welcome to the Worldview War Room. As always, I am your esteemed host, Brenton Levi. I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm not esteemed. I'm actually a very humble person, I promise. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, on this episode, we have Pastor J.R. Vassar. He is a senior pastor at Church of the Cross in Grapevine, Texas, which is actually the church that God used to reveal the reality of Jesus Christ to me, to convict me of my sin and of my need for a Savior, uh, the church that um, God has used to like really grow me in community and discipleship, um, and eventually to go out and plant, uh, help plant the church that I am currently a part of. So it's a really special thing for me to be able to interview JR. He's the first pastor whose teaching I regularly sat under, and I still listen to most of his sermons on the podcast that uh, Church of the Cross puts out. Go check that out, by the way. Um, And yeah, so on this episode, we talk about discerning God's will for our lives. It's a very important topic. I think I probably say that on every episode, but it is an important topic, and of course all of the episodes are important topics. Why else would I be having the conversations and releasing them as podcasts? So I hope hope they're important. Um, <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> it's an important topic. Uh, we have There's a lot of practical information in this episode, as well as some just fun theological discussion. Uh, so I hope it is very edifying to you, and before we get to that... Please, if you have not already, go leave a five-star rating for the show. I know you're out there. The Anon, you, person, you, faithful listener, um, faithful Christian, uh, disciple of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, you who are listening to this show and have not yet left a five-star rating, just go do so. Go leave the five stars. Then next time I say this, you can say, Brenton, I have left the five stars. Leave me alone. And I will say, okay. Thank you for leaving the five stars. And then go listen to J.R. Vassar on the Worldview War Room. (laughs) 
J.R. Vassar, thank you for joining me on the show, brother. Thanks, Brenton. Good to be here, man. All right. So let's just get started by giving our listeners a little bit about who you are, what you do, maybe your background, and then uh, your testimony in coming to Christ, and we will go from there. Yeah. So I currently, currently I serve as uh, the lead pastor of Church at the Cross in Grapevine, Texas. Uh, I've been here for about nine years prior to that. Uh, my, my wife and I, we met in college, uh, got married right out of college, um, had a call on my life to ministry. And so right out of college, started, a, started a, an organization focused on mobilizing high school kids for short-term mission trips. Um, ended up uh, moving our offices to Lake Point Church in Rockwall and started serving there as a teaching pastor. And after being there for four years, we felt God calling us to plant a church. And so moved to New York City in 2005 and planted a church in the Upper East Side of Manhattan there. And uh, God just was gracious to us and uh, saw a lot of favor and fruit there. And uh, 2013, after doing that for about nine years, uh, felt God calling us out of that work and handed that work off to our elders there and moved back to the great Republic of Texas. And uh, this church is the actual church I went to in high school and surrendered the ministry here at this church and preached my first sermon here at this church and did an internship out of high school here at this church. Hadn't been here in 20 plus years. And they called me and said, hey, our pastor just resigned. He's uh, joined another ministry and we'd like you to be our interim. So I came here as an interim for about five months and then they brought me on as as the senior pastor. And so been here just a little, little over, well, right at nine years now. And, uh, yeah, trying to faithfully pastor a local church. Yeah. Praise God. Um, okay. So when did you first, I mean, you grew up Christian, I believe, is that correct? Yeah. I was raised in a, I was raised in a Christian home and early on, and probably when I was six or seven, I just had a real sense that uh, Jesus died for me. And, uh, and when I was eight years old, I, um, I could really articulate an understanding of the gospel that I was a sinner and that there was nothing I could do to erase my sins or earn a right standing with God. And that's why in his mercy, he sent his son, Jesus, who loved me and gave himself up for me that I might be forgiven and restored back to God. And so, I, uh, even at the age of eight, had a real strong sense of that and committed my life to Christ, trusted him as my savior, was baptized at Calvary Baptist Church in Panhandle, Texas on like September 8th of 1981, I believe it was. And, um, and, uh, and then like just, you know, had, had a season here or there where I, I was just kind of lethargic or, you know, uh, hypocritical and rebellious, but, but the Lord, uh, really preserved my, my faith and, um, kind of kept me near him, um, throughout my high school and junior high and high school, high school days. And then ended up in college where I think college is such a forming and shaping time. And that was where I feel like I took some quantum leaps in my relationship with the Lord. All right. Awesome. So 
You mentioned earlier uh, the church that you planted in New York. Yeah. Um, and you have an article that you wrote for Ligon Year that you said you published about uh, a little over 10 years ago, correct? Yeah. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the process of deciding to plant a church in New York of all places and uh, how that article uh, is kind of involved with that whole uh, process? Yeah, uh, man, we, when we were at Lake Point Church, um, we felt... We just fell in love with the local church and, um, and I've always had a, I I guess in 1996, um, Christianity Today released two articles or two issues back to back on the persecuted church. And, um, man, I, I, I just had such a small view of the church and, God just started opening my eyes to the fact that it's his, it's his plan to be known, loved, trusted, and treasured in all the earth among all the nations. And, and God started really giving me a heart for places where the gospel wasn't prevailing and where the church was weak or altogether absent. And so we originally thought we were going to end up overseas. My wife and I ended up going to Urbana, which is a massive world missions conference in Champaign, Illinois. And uh, we thought we were going to end up in Turkey as missionaries. And uh, the more we had our heart lit up for mission, the more God kept giving us a platform to speak to students. And so I just said, let's bring those two together and let's start sending students overseas. And so that's when we started a ministry that now is called I Go Global. And uh, Lance Shoemake, who's my best friend, he, he's been leading that ministry for 20 plus years. But uh, so there's there's been this drive in my heart. I, I, I want to see the gospel go where it's not not really going. And so when we got to Lake Point and fell in love with the local church, I started getting a heart to plant a church. And I wanted to plant a church where the church just didn't seem to be doing very well. And um, so we, we began to pray through that. I went and uh, met with a man named Bob Roberts, who is a pastor in Keller, Texas, and kind of a church planting czar, if you will. And was doing stuff all over the world. And I went and talked with him and I said, Bob, if you were going to plant a church anywhere in North America, where would you plant it? And he said, I'd plant it in New York City. And I said, if you were going to plant it anywhere else other than New York City, where would you plant it? I had no desire to go to New York City. Long story short, he takes me to New York uh, in December of 2003. And I walk that city for about four days praying and asking the Lord, is this where you would have us go? And when I left there, I was convinced I would never even go back to visit. And uh, I got I got back from that trip and immediately was leaving for Seattle to go to Seattle uh, to explore church planning there. And Bob called me the day before my flight left and he goes, well, what do you think about New York? And I said, man, I, I know it needs churches. I know it shapes culture. I know that, um, that the need there is massive, but man, I just don't want to go there. And he said, well, wh- what is it? And I said, well, the number one, the city's too big. And I don't know if I want to put my wife and kids in that environment. And so he said, well, just keep it on the table. So I fly to Seattle. But the first morning I'm there, I open up my Bible and I'm reading the account of the 12 spies and Joshua and Caleb said, let's go take the land. And the other spies were like, no, the cities are too great and they'll devour our wife and kids. And I had just given those same two excuses about New York City and I felt like the Lord just said, hey, you, you're not going to give your fears more authority than you give me. And I had to start thinking through that. 
And that whole time I was in Seattle, the Lord would not let me stop thinking about New York City. It really came down to, are we going to give our fears authority in our life? <clears throat> are we going to, to, to think about all the what ifs? Um, or are we going to take the scriptural approach and say, well, if God, if God's for us, who can be against us? If God did not spare his own son, will he not with him freely give us all things? If God cares for the birds of the, the air and the flowers of the field, is he going to care for us? And so I just decided I would start asking the question or making the statement, if God, instead of asking what if, and we just started giving our father more authority than our fears and, and just said to the Lord, all right, we're, wherever you want to go, wherever you want to take us, we want to just put our yes on the table and let you put, um, you know, your, your will for us on the map somewhere. And uh, so we, uh, we just started praying and six months later in June of 20, uh, June of 2004, we just resolved this is what God's calling us to do. So uh, moved there in January of 2005 and started a church in our little apartment there in the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And it, um, my understanding is like from that point on, God just kept blessing and blessing the uh, just the church and everything that you were doing there, right? Yeah, man. We, I didn't know what I was doing. We didn't, we didn't really take a team with us. We had a few people that friends knew who were going to be moving to New York and said, you should meet them. And so we randomly had 13 people counting my wife and I in our apartment in March of 20, no, March of 2005 said, Hey guys, we're going to start a church. And from that 13 people in our apartment, you know, we grew to a church with two, we had a congregation down in Union Square that met at St. George's Episcopal Church. And we had a congregation in the Upper East Side and had about 600 folks um, just worshiping every week and uh, small groups throughout the city and mercy and justice ministries in the city. And I don't know, man, the Lord just blessed. I didn't know what I was doing. And um, uh, when we left there, there we had a, a third congregation that started in Brooklyn and the Lord's just been really kind. And um, the Apostles Church is still going today and led by some really great folks. And yeah, so it's it's just his grace. No. All right. So I have a couple of directions I want to go from that. Um, so I think first, uh, just kind of simply, how how should people look at discerning, like really discerning God's will? Like you said, you know, you were really deep in prayer, you and your wife, that you were in the Word, and you know, you um, you had that story about like where you felt like God was speaking to mm -hmm. you. Uh, through his word. Um, but, you know, I think it's probably difficult for a lot of people to really understand, like, what is their own desire? Like, w you know, what is actually coming from God? What is a prompting from the Holy Spirit? What is just me, you know, wanting to do something for, you know, myself, right? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. So there, when we think of the will of God, there's clearly some things that are God's will lined out in scripture, um, you know, where it, it's, it's the will of God that we would give thanks um, to the Lord. It's the will of God that we would rejoice in all circumstances. It's the will of God that we'd be generous with our resources. So there's lots of things we don't have to ask. Is this God's will? God's word clearly lays it out for us that this is God's will. Uh, he has a moral will um, that he expects us to conform to. And then there's those life decisions like, am I going to marry? Where am I going to live? What am I going to do with my life? And... Um, 
do believe that God gives us a leading and guidance in those things. And I think sometimes the will of God is like a target that you got to hit. And sometimes it's a, it's a big field and God just says, run where the grass feels best. And, um, and so for, for, for us discerning, what is God, where is God leading? I think there's a, a few things. Um, one is keeping your heart, um, sensitive and tender and pure before the Lord. Uh, you know, if, if you're walking in rebellion against God, it's going to be really hard uh, to discern what the Lord's, how the Lord's leading. Um, you know, if you're not surrendered to him and yielded to him and seeking intimacy and fellowship with him, um, because it's not a mechanical thing, it's a relational thing. And the Lord leads us in the midst of a relationship with him. And so first thing we want to just get our heart happy in the Lord and get our heart yielded and surrendered to him and um, get into a place where we're no longer arguing with him. Um, we're no longer refusing uh, his authority over our lives, but we're just yielded and surrendered to him. And then I think secondly is just keeping, um, you know, cultivating a life of prayer and a life of listening prayer where we're, we're not just talking to God and then moving on, but we're talking to God and we're getting quiet before the Lord and we're listening to the Lord and seeing how he might want to move our hearts. Uh, we, we, as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And the scripture says that all those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And so there is an internal presence of the Lord where by his Spirit, he does lead and guide his children. Um, you know, the promise of the new covenant is one of the promises of the new covenant is you would hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way to go now, walk in it. And that's that's really one of the roles of the spirit is to is to kind of prompt us and, and move us. And um, you see this in the life of the, of the of the early church as the spirits just moving people along and directing their steps and leading Paul on his missionary journeys and sending Philip. You know, um, so there's there's the, the role of the Holy Spirit. And then lastly, I think there's the role of other Christians in your life. You know, in Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas don't come to the church and say, hey, we think God's calling us to the mission field. The Spirit spoke to the church and said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work to, for the work to which I've called them. So it was the Spirit speaking to the church and the church discerning that call on their life and then empowering them and releasing them into what God was calling them to. So, so I think there's the scripture that tells us what God wants. There's the Holy Spirit who leads us and guides us when we listen to him. And I think that's where prayer and even fasting comes into play. And then there's the church. And so when you've got the scripture, you've got the spirit and you've got the church um, and, and there's confirmation uh, like that, I think you're getting to a place where you're discerning God's will for your life. Yeah. So I really like that uh, that last point a lot. Um, would you mind maybe like elaborating a little bit more on that? Like, do you think the church, you know, in general nowadays does a good job of kind of that um, kind of corporate or like um, elder led or communal, um, I guess, guidance of people in their life, like with, you know, big decisions um, and stuff like that? No, I don't, um, frankly. And I think part of that is like we're, we're, we live in such an autonomous individualistic age where I'm not going to let anybody tell me what I should do with my money or I'm not going to let anybody tell me what I should do in my relationships or so 
Uh, there is a in the scripture when you see the life of the New Testament church. Yes, we don't lose our individuality. Um, the Lord deals with us as individuals, but He also deals with us in community, and uh, we're called to submit ourselves to one another. Um, we're called to, uh, you know, to keep our lives open to one another. Um, I think that there's a lot of decisions that people make that they make as a sh totally an individual, and they don't include other other Christians or the church in, into those decisions. And they don't make those decisions with the church in mind. Um, I, I think we should be making decisions with the church in mind. I think we should be making more decisions in community. Like if you're going to make a massive purchase, I think it's a good idea to bring other people into that, into that decision with you to say, hey, here's what we're thinking about doing. Here's our resources. Here's the margin that we have in our life. You think this is a wise decision? And... Um, but I don't think we have a tendency typically to do that. I think we're pretty individualistic. And, um, and I think we would, there's a collective wisdom in the church that we should probably, probably, probably be gleaning from. Um, but that requires a lot of humility. It requires an understanding that Jesus isn't just saving individuals. He's saving a people. He's calling those people to be a family in Jesus. Um, and when you're a part of a family, you make decisions with the family in mind. And so, I, yeah, I, I think we could do a better job than that. Yeah, um, I feel like uh, we probably think that by like submitting our decisions to a, a more communal, um, I guess, oversight, we would be losing some sort of freedom. But really, it's like the the pressure and the the responsibility of having to make a decision all on your own without any sort of input or feedback from other people that might be able to see things that you don't see. I mean, that's actually, I feel like that it, it, there's more freedom in being able to be like, Hey, like, you know, I don't have to do it all on my own. I have these other people that care about me, that know me, can pr that pray for me, that can like, you know, advocate for me, you know, to the Lord. I think there's a lot, actually a lot more freedom in that. Yeah. I think that's a great point. And, um, like when we were wrestling with whether or not to go to New York, we had a group of people that met with us almost every week and prayed with us. And we had dear friends in our life. We had elders in the church and we weren't going to go to New York unless they all felt like, yeah, we, we sense God's hands in this. And we affirm that in your life. And we had some, also some wild circumstances that, that kept happening that were, that were just more indications. That's another, that's another factor in discerning God's will is that sometimes God just is gracious and gives you like a sign or he gives you some confirmation along the way. And so we were getting confirmation along the way with just some random circumstances, but, but ultimately it was the voice of other Christians in our life that knew us, that loved us, that knew the Lord and walked with the Lord who said, Hey, we, we affirm God's doing this. We affirm God's calling your life to plant a church. And we affirm as we pray with you, as we hear your heart, as we see these circumstances lining up, we absolutely affirm God's calling you to New York. And, and I'll say this, because of that, because of the, the, the affirmation of those people, because of those, um, those moments of sensing the, the Spirit's leadership, and because of those circumstances that often affirmed and confirmed that leading, 
we found ourselves at certain times in New York where the challenges were so difficult that if we didn't have those things, we would really be doubting whether or not we were in the middle of God's will for our lives. And so that's why I think having other people weigh in on those decisions, because you're going to get in the middle of the will of God. And it's, you know, everyone says the will of God is the safest place to be. Well, tell that to the martyrs, man. It's not the safest place to be. Um, it's the most life-giving place to be, but it's hard. Being in the will of God is hard. I mean, there's a there's a garden of Gethsemane that Jesus has to walk through, and that's the hardest moment, you know, where he's sweating great drops of blood. And so the will of God is hard. And if you don't have those people in your life who say, hey, stay with it, man, because this is, we all sense this is what God was doing. and This is what God wanted for you. And so, yeah, I think that, yeah, it relieves a lot of pressure. Like I have to come up with all the answers, but also it gives you some anchors whenever you're going through some difficult times. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Okay. So, um, <laughs> maybe get a little more theology, uh, theological real quick. Um, I'm curious, like how you conceptualize or what your views are on the balance between God's sovereignty and our free will. I don't know if you identify as a Calvinist or not, but like maybe just a little bit about uh, your thoughts on that and how that comes into play with kind of making these big decisions and discerning God's will. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't, I don't necessarily identify as a Calvinist because I think everyone has some different ideas of what Calvinism is. And so when people go, are you a Calvinist? I'm like, well, I don't even know. I don't know what you mean by that yeah. because most likely what you mean by that, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, uh, ascribe to, but I have a high regard for the sovereignty of God. I think the Lord's in the heaven heavens and he does what he pleases. I believe Ephesians 1.11, he's working all things together after the counsel of his will. I believe that Jesus says, look, all that the Father gives him are going to come to him. No one can come to him unless the Father draws him. So, I, yeah, I have a high regard for the sovereignty of God. I also have a high regard for the responsibility of man. And I don't I don't think those two things are in contradiction to one another. I think there's there is some meeting of those things that might be over our head a little bit. But I know that Jesus says no one can come to him unless the Father draws them. I know Jesus says that none will come to him unless the Father gives them to him. And I also know he wept over Jerusalem and said, I wanted to bring you under my wings like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. And he puts the blame on them. So uh, I have a high regard for both the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And I believe that... Um, that God is sovereign and that his sovereignty does not release us from our responsibility. So when it comes to our decision-making, um, I do uh, have uh, a high sense that God's in control here and my decisions, I'm accountable for them, but my decisions are not going to thwart the purposes of God and the plans of God. Um, I'm not going to mess up. God's plans. I might, um, I might negatively affect how I participate in those plans and what role I might have in bringing those plans about, but I'm not going to mess up the plan of God. And there's something assuring and comforting about that. Uh, I don't think God's going to, um, entrust the success of his will, um, into the hands of, uh, feeble and, and, and weak and frail 
people. I believe he's going to take weak and feeble and frail people and include them in bringing about his purposes and plans. But the success of those purposes and plans isn't riding on the, our backs. Uh, it's, it's something God's going to do and he's going to bring about. I want to live my life in such a way that I don't, I don't miss out on participating in that and being used to bring those things to fruition. Um, but he's going to bring them to fruition. Yeah. So you already kind of touched on this a little bit, uh, when discussing about like how to discern God's will. Um, but maybe, uh, I'd be interested if you would want to elaborate a little bit more on how our obedience in the little things, um, kind of in our daily life kind of would affect our ability to, uh, participate in God's or God's, you know, I guess, willingness to use us, uh, in the ways that you're talking about. Yeah, I think you, uh, so the scriptures talk about being led by the spirit. The scriptures talk about being filled with the spirit. Um, the scriptures speak of being empowered by the spirit and the scriptures also speak of quenching the spirit and grieving the spirit. And the Lord's looking for people to involve in his purposes and plans who will surrender to his His will, who will be led by his spirit, who will respond to the promptings of his spirit, who won't neglect his, his Holy Spirit, who won't quench his spirit, who won't grieve his spirit, but will keep in step with the spirit, who will walk by the spirit, who will be filled by the spirit. And, um, and our our ability to discern and participate in the Lord's purposes um, largely depend upon how responsive we are to his word and to his spirit. Jesus said that if, if you have my commandments and keep them, you love me and you'll be loved by my father and I will show myself to you. So there's even a sense where our growth in the knowledge of Jesus depends upon our obedience to what we already know of Jesus. It's like if you got a personal trainer and he took you to the gym and you sat down at the bench and he threw on a couple plates and said, let's do this. And it was hard and you struggled, but you did it. And then as you got stronger, he threw on a couple more plates and said, let's, let's do this now. And you struggled and, but you finally did it. And then he goes, okay, let's try this. And you throw on, he throws on another plate and you're like, I ain't doing that. Well, then your growth kind of stops and you might even possibly weaken. And part of the, like walking with Jesus is where uh, by his spirit, he shows us things. And it's hard to do, but as we do it, we grow strong and we, we mature and we grow. And then he reveals something else to us and says, Hey, I want you to, this is an area of your life I want to focus on. And, and, I, and, but when we, when we say to him, I'm not doing that, uh, there's, there's like a, a, a slow, a, a slowness to our growth and even sometimes a regression. But Jesus says, if you have my commandments and you obey them, you're going to know my love more. Not that he's going to love us more, but we're going to experience more of his love in our life. And he's going to show himself to us more and more. So revelation to us oftentimes depends on our obedience to the revelation we currently have. So our obedience, our submission, our responsiveness to God um, is critical in our growth, our progress, our discerning more of what God wants for our life. There's a lot of people who've just kind of 
stalled in their Christian faith because they they've gotten to a point where they're not they're not obeying the things God's already shown them. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk a little bit um, more about fear. So that article, um, I think more or less the thesis of the article was um, fear of God versus fear of man or fear, you know, our own fears, right? So how should someone approach um, knowing the the source of their fear? Or like, because I feel like we could have fear that is actually leading us away from God, or we could have fear that is like like a healthy fear of God, you know, like especially in you know in the Old Testament we hear a lot about you know the fear of God and like that fear of God could lead us towards God because we mm-hmm. are uh, that is leading us towards obedience. Um, so yeah, like how do you conceptualize the difference between those uh, kinds of fear? Yeah, I think the f- the fear of God is absolutely critical. the the, the fear of God. Um, yeah, we see it a lot in the Old Testament. We also see it in the New Testament that we would walk in the fear of the Lord. Um, and I, the fear of the Lord just is, is one, a healthy sense of his greatness, of his supremacy. Um, of, there's a sense of wonder and awe and also gratitude. You know, Psalm 130, verse 4 says, If you kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand but with you? There's forgiveness of sins, therefore you're feared. So there's a fear of the Lord in response to his forgiving grace. So that fear is that mingling of awe and wonder and humility and trembling at his greatness, but also gratitude for his grace. And it really comes down to supremely valuing him. To fear the Lord means I value him supremely. Um, I revere and esteem him above everything else. The fear of man means that really what I'm esteeming and what I'm valuing are one, people's perceptions of me, or two, um, I'm fearing what man can do to me. And so uh, the fear of the Lord is like fearing what God can do to me. Uh, that's kind of that place of repentance and, um, you know, the fear of the Lord is understanding that apart from Christ, I'm under God's judgment and condemnation and God's the greatest threat to my physical and eternal well-being. And only in Christ, uh, can I be forgiven and reconciled to God and brought safely into his forever family. And so, uh, so fearing man is I'm afraid what man can do to me or I want man's approval or his acceptance or i want people to think well of me and the scriptures are pretty clear that you cannot you cannot have the favor what you can't want the favor of man and the approval of man and the glory that comes from people and simultaneously want the approval and favor of god and the glory that comes from him john 12 42, they, many believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they would not confess him because they had determined to you know, kick anyone out of the synagogue who confessed Jesus. And it says, for they love the glory that comes from men more than the glory that comes from God. So we got to make this decision in life. Am I going to live uh, in the fear of the Lord 
esteeming him, prizing him, valuing him, cherishing him, and seeking his approval and his favor, and wanting to be honoring to him and honored by him? Or am I going to submit to people? Am I going to live out of fear of them? What will they think of me? How will they treat me? Um, will they esteem me? Will they respect me? Will they honor me? Um, am I going to be included? Am I, am I going to be thought well of? You can't, you can't live for both those things. You just can't do it. Um, and so to live for the glory of God means that you will oftentimes um, and live in the fear of the Lord. You will oftentimes have to be despised and rejected by people. Um, you know what Jesus is really clear. What, what man treasures, God despises. And oftentimes the thing that God treasures, people despise. So, yeah, I think when, if we're going to talk about fear in general, the first thing is we want to we want to rightly order our fears, which means we fear God above all things. Uh, we fear him for his greatness, his immensity, his transcendence, his supremacy, his preeminence. We fear him for his love, his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness. We have this constant mingling of awe and wonder and fascination and love and delight and gratitude and surrender. That's all the fear of the Lord versus trembling before people and just wanting to please people. Um, I don't even know if that's a question you ask, but that's where we landed. So yeah, no, I <laughs> no, it was great. Um, I mean, that basically was the question. Um, and it, so, it, okay. So where my mind is going now is I'm thinking, I'm thinking of, let's say a man that is like a corporate executive. He has a lot mm -hmm. of responsibility. Um, you know, say this, whatever company he's a part of, uh, you know, really relies on him and his, his skills. He also has a family. Um, let's say he has a bunch of kids, right? Maybe he's really involved in his community, um, whatever, you know, some, some sort of scenario like that. And then say he starts praying, he starts feeling led to, maybe he hears one of your sermons where you talk about, um, you know, going to the nations, right? And he just starts feeling called to do that. Um, and he starts praying about it. Him and his wife are praying about it. Maybe he goes to the elders. Um, you know, and he, so and he decides that that's uh, what God's calling him to do. How, how does someone balance kind of earthly responsibility um, with a seemingly irresponsible call to do something radical? Or you, you also mentioned um, in the article, like uh, radical giving, right? Um, so mm -hmm. like maybe giving beyond what feels comfortable and what may seem irresponsible to outsiders. Um, so yeah, like how does someone balance kind of responsibility and, uh, that kind of more just radical living for the kingdom? Yeah. Well, first of all, every, the, anyone that attempts to, to live sacrificially and obedient to Jesus, you're going to have people always trying to talk you out of it. Uh, we had people try to talk us out of going to New York. You know, um, they weren't they weren't our they weren't our most trusted inner circle of people that were praying with us. But there's always someone like, why would you want to do that? Like you you have such a great thing going here. Um, you know, if you're a a college grad 
and you've got the opportunity to go land a job at a pretty major company and make a lot of bank, but the Lord calls you to, you know, go plant your life in the Middle East and make Christ known among Muslim peoples, you're going to have people try to talk you out of it. I mean, it's just always, you know, it's like the Apostle Paul, like, hey, man, the Spirit's calling me to, to, to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what's going to happen to me there. I just know that prison and affliction await me. And they tried to stop him from going. And he's like, look, you're breaking my heart here. This, I, I, I'm not only willing to go to Jerusalem and be in prison, I'm ready to go there and, and to die for the Lord Jesus. And so even the Apostle Paul had people trying to talk him out of where the Lord was calling him. So there's always going to be someone trying to talk you out of um, obedience to Jesus, especially if that's a costly, radical obedience. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense from a human perspective. And you just got to resolve it's better to obey God than to obey man. On the other side of that is the responsibility factor. I do think, um, I, I do think there are responsibilities that we have that can delay our opportunity to pursue certain um, open doors. So, uh, for instance, someone may graduate college with a lot of debt and they want to go to the mission field. Mission agencies are like, hey, man, you got to pay off your debts first. So he's got a responsibility or she's got a responsibility to get a job, work hard, pay off those debts so that she can be at a place or he can be at a place to go to the field. There are um, certain families that have kids with special needs and that makes they've got a responsibility to those kids. And that makes certain things challenging and difficult for them uh, when it comes to maybe some things they'd love to do for the Lord. Um, but the thing the Lord's calling them to is to take good care of their special needs kid. So I think that um, I think that this is where where community comes in, where people um, get to weigh in on that with you and say, um, yeah, we sense God doing this. And yeah, it's going to seem a little irresponsible to some people. Um, but it's also just trusting the Lord with the outcomes of your life and saying, man, we're, we have a real sense that this is what God's called us to do. Uh, I don't know how it's going to work out, man. It's Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Uh, I just read this story last night to my six year old and they're like, Hey, we're not bound down to your idol. God will deliver us. And even if he doesn't deliver us, we're still not going to bow down to your idol. You know, it's Esther saying, all right, I'll go and, Stand before the king and you guys fast and pray. And if I perish, I perish. It's, um, you know, you see that in the scripture that even if he doesn't kind of thing. But it's like, man, this is what he's called us to. We're going to trust him for the outcomes. I can't guarantee those outcomes are going to turn out well for me. But I trust the Lord with him and I'm going to move forward in obedience to him. And so, yeah, a guy may have to leave a Fortune 500 company and he might... Uh, lose a lot of resources in the process, but he's got to trust the Lord with the outcomes of that. And uh, it might end in a martyr's death, but he's got to trust the Lord with the outcomes of that. So I, I think there is certain responsibilities that delay our opportunities. I think there's certain responsibilities that trump other desires. Um, and then I think there's certain cost we just got to embrace and trust a little the outcomes of it. Yeah, I think that 
that kind of faithful surrender to whatever, like to whatever the outcome is, if you know, you really feel like you're walking in faithfulness, um, is huge. Like that's something I've been doing a lot with myself lately, just like praying, like God, like whatever it is, like however it looks, like just use me, like, you know, like allow me to surrender my life to you. Um, and like kind of, uh, release me or deliver me from like having to have this kind of like firm hold on like what, what things look like, um, you know, like have an idea, like a pre, like a preconceived uh, notion of what God's will for me actually looks like. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I feel like that can kind of get in the way. It's like, oh, well, no, God, you're leading me to this, but like I'm going this way. And you know, what, does that make sense what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. And here, here's, I have a friend named, I have a friend named Brooks who, um, who grew up in Papua New Guinea. So, a, a lot of a lot of our fears that we have, um, they never materialize. So, Brooks's parents feel called to go plant to go plant a church among a tribal people in Papua New Guinea. They've got to get there. They've got to learn a language. They've got to they got to create a written language for those people. They've got to translate the Bible into that language. They've got to story the gospel. They've got to plant a church. It's going to take them ten years. And they're going to have to raise their kids in the jungle. And people are telling them, don't do that to your kids. That's like the worst thing you could do for your kid. And imagine all the scenarios in the parents' minds about what, what's going to happen if we go raise our kids in the jungles of Papua New Guinea. And all those fears that you start to form in your mind by your flesh, and then you move there and they never materialize and it ends up that you to ask Brooks what his childhood was like. And he's like, are you kidding me? I had the time of my life growing up in the jungles of Papua New Guinea. And um, so there's a lot of times we can psych ourselves out of obedience to God because we have all these trumped up fears in our minds that would never materialize if we just walked forward in obedience. And and that's that's what I'm talking about, giving more authority to our imaginations than we do the truth. You know, there's a, there's God's given us truth and promises and he can't lie. And then there's our own fallen, fleshly, fearful imaginations and drumming up all kinds of scenarios that most likely aren't even going to materialize. Yeah. All right. So we are starting to come up on the end, but there is one more kind of topic I want to address. Um, So, you know, we are in a spiritual war. Um, I know recently y'all had uh, Sam Storms come talk. I was really disappointed I couldn't uh, come to that. Um, so I would be interested in hearing you talk a little bit about uh, how the enemy plays into, um, you know, I guess, our fears and our decision-making and our discerning of God's will. And so I, I guess for a little bit of context from my end um, – I used to be like really into like psychedelics and meditation and all this kind of stuff. And there is a very real um, experience that people have of like communicating with entities and stuff. Mm -hmm. Right. And then I even think of like kind of like charismatic Christians, right? Like prophesying and, you know, some of that is legitimate and some of that Mm is, is bogus. Um, So I just, how does that kind of play in? How does spiritual warfare play into all of this? And uh, like, how should we approach that as Christians? Yeah, so, uh, you know, the enemy uh, loves to use fear. Um, 
whenever uh, Hebrews two speaks of the work of Jesus, it says that we've been that he he basically set us free uh, from the fear of death, that we've been held captive by the enemy in the fear of death. So the enemy uh, uses fear a lot to try to control us. Um, you know, I, I think um, when you look at G the temptation that Jesus faces with uh, Satan, one of Satan's temptations, one of his tactics, one of his uh, tools in his belt is to get us to presume upon the Lord. So he tells Jesus, throw yourself in the temple and the angels will pick you up. And he's like, I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. So one is to try to give us an overconfidence where we presume upon the Lord for things the Lord never promised. But mainly he uses fear. He just keeps us locked up in all kinds of fear, the fear of death, the fear of um, even, even as children, I think even the fear of the dark sometimes uh, can be, you know, excessive fears like that, or you get the enemy behind trying to, to rob us of joy and of life and of peace by instigating, promoting, and intensifying fear in our life. Um, and, uh, I, yeah, so spiritual warfare is very real. And one of the things I think the enemy will use to keep you paralyzed, not moving forward in the will of God is fear. Um, and he'll attack you at the level again of your imaginations. He'll attack you at the level of, um, you know, of, uh, even using people to, to even create more fear in you. Um, and by his own presence, you know, demonic presence that bring fear into our life. And, um, I mean, I've got dear friends that struggle with that where they, they, it's like they, they sense a phys they sense an actual presence, um, striking fear into them. And they have to fight that with prayer and with faith and with the authority of Jesus. Um, so yeah, I think, I think obviously fear is a very, uh, very real weapon of the enemy. And you've got to discern like what, what am I, am I facing something here where I'm actually, um, this is a good thing. Like, um, fear is actually a good thing to keep us from doing stupid stuff. That's going to ruin our lives. And then, but that's what the enemy does, man. He takes things that can be good and he turns them to real evil and, um, so fear that's meant to keep you in check from doing foolish things that run your life can also be, become a prison for you in pursuing things that God's calling you into. Um, so we just got to learn to discern where the fear is coming from and how do we face it? So I think of, you know, in kind of the occult new age, you know, Eastern mysticism world, there's a lot of, um, and obviously, you know, they, they don't know Christ. They don't have the Holy Spirit. So it's a different situation. But um, there's a lot of like <laughs> what I would consider to be like demonic activity, but in the clothed in the idea of like light and mm -hmm. goodness and, you know, like virtuousness or whatever, right? It, it, they yeah. think it, it's goodness, but it's actually evil. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, it like 
since we have the Holy Spirit as Christians, I mean, are we are we more able to kind of discern against that? I mean, I do see Christians, I mean, falling prey to a, that kind of stuff a lot of the time. Like they think that, um, you know, something is good when it um, is by many accounts, probably not. Um, so, yeah, I mean, how, how can we kind of guard against that? Yeah, I mean, the scripture says that the that the devil parades around as an angel of light. You know, he's never going to show his typically he's not going to show his true colors. Um, he's going to lead you away from the truth by dangling things in front of you that seem true. Paul in Galatians talks about anyone who preaches another Jesus. And so and and, and Paul's going to say that's a demonic thing. So so. Um, so the enemy will uh, present things to our senses and to our minds that seem like light. It seems to line a chord with Jesus, whether that's false teaching. Um, you know, Paul talks about the doctrine of demons. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of spinoffs of the church out there that, gosh, this seems like looks like Christianity, kind of feels like Christian. It's a different Jesus. It's a different gospel. It's a, it's the doctrine of demons. And so, uh, yeah, that's very real. And, and first John, John's writing to them saying, Hey, look, you've got the Holy spirit in you. You have this anointing from the Holy spirit to help you discern the truth. And so, yeah, because as Christians, we've received the spirit of the truth and we've not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit of the truth, the spirit, the Holy spirit, we can, the scripture says in 1 Corinthians 2, receive the things freely given to us by God, the things that God wants us to know, the truth that God's given us. So the presence of the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to discern truth and to discern when something is looks a little like the truth, but it's not the truth. And it's, it's the enemy parading around as an angel of light. It's the enemy presenting to us another Jesus. Looks a little like Jesus, sounds a little like Jesus, doctrine of demons. Um, so it takes a lot of discernment and, and it takes, uh, you know, pe people who, uh, are given over to spiritualism, um, like, you know, Oprah Winfrey kind of faith, um, a lot of positive, positive thinking, uh, the enemy's going to let them continue in that um and make them feel positive about it and good about it and you know that's why i think um our testimonies about how i i became a christian and now my life is filled with all kinds of joy and purpose and peace people in the occult are saying the same thing people i mean martin lloyd jones used to hit this all the time um the great preacher in you know London at Westminster Chapel back in the um, 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s um, he's one of my heroes but he would always say hey look Christianity is not Jesus gives you peace Jesus gives you purpose Jesus gives you meaning um, he said man the, the cults can do that um, Jesus reconciles us to God Jesus provides forgiveness of sins Jesus gives us his Holy Spirit. Jesus brings us into the kingdom of God. Jesus makes us victorious over the evil one. Um, but don't confuse the 
the content of the gospel, what Christ has done to save us with the consequences of the gospel. Yes, he does bring peace and joy and life. Um, but as a consequence of dealing with our sin and guilt and death and condemnation and shame and reconciling us back to the Father. So the enemy will love to keep people feeling peaceful and joyful and content and full of light. Because um, if he can keep them there, uh, they won't they won't sense their own brokenness and need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like the Lord doesn't usually sanctify us by like giving us everything we want, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Well, um, so we are coming up on the end. Um, so just a couple of quick more questions. Uh, one is kind of my my finishing question for the uh, episode. But uh, you did mention earlier that um, part of your, I guess, impetus to uh, plant a church was that you, I mean, you really feel strongly about seeing the gospel proclaimed, you know, uh, discipling the nations, all that good stuff. Um, so would you consider yourself post-millennialist? No. <laughs> I thought you would say no, but I wanted to throw that out there. <laughs> man, I wish, I wish post-millennialism was true. Oh man, can you imagine? Just like, we're going to see this worldwide revival and then Jesus is going to come. No, I, I, I just think we have too much human history uh, to show us that we're not getting better, man. <laughs> I mean, we're just getting worse. We're just getting worse. No, not a post millennialist, but great question. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So last question. Uh, can you please just articulate the gospel in your own words? Yes, absolutely. The gospel is, um, is the saving reign of Jesus uh restoring us to God and healing all creation. Um, that's, that's really what it is. Um, Jesus uh, came proclaiming the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom of God, that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, sinners can be forgiven, restored into relationship with God, come under his good, saving rule and reign, and experience his renewing power at work in their life that reaches consummation in the new heavens and new earth. That's the beauty of the gospel. Amen, brother. Thank you so much for uh, joining me today. Thanks, Brenton. Man, I appreciate it. Love what you're doing. (laughs) Thanks, man. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Worldview War Room. I hope you have a better idea of what God's will for your life is. And if you don't, well, you can always just go out and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. I'll see you back here next time.